Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. Today, I bring you my interview with author Carla Nomberg. Carla is a writer, mother, and clinical social worker. She is the author of three parenting books, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, and Mindful Magazine, among other places. Today, we will be discussing her latest book, How to Stop Losing Your Beep with Your Kids. The title suggests humor. However, there is so much wisdom we can draw from Carla's research and insights. This is one that you will not want to miss. But before we get to the interview, would you say that you benefit from listening to the Minimalist Moms podcast? If so, it helps enormously to share it with your friends and to follow on the Minimalist Moms Instagram page. As I said last episode, I really want to build up our community this summer and gain your insight regarding what you want to hear next. So also, if you haven't yet, be sure to leave a rating and review. What are you waiting for? It only takes less than a minute and it really helps me to produce higher quality content and creators. So as always, I just appreciate you listening. And now for my interview with Carla. Carla, thank you so much for joining me on the Minimalist Moms podcast today. Diane, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to discussing your book and just walking away with a few tips for myself on how to just keep my cool a little bit more with my children. But before we get into our discussion, can you tell the listeners just a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. So I'm a clinical social worker and I'm the author of three parenting books. And this is the most recent one. I'm also a mother of two daughters who right now are 11 and nine and a half years old. And I came into this work because, you know, I never thought I would lose my temper with my kids. I never thought parenting would be so hard. And then I found that I was really struggling with it. And I wanted to figure out a way to be calmer and patient and more present. And um, my journey really, which started when my daughters were very young, took me to mindfulness and compassion and work in those areas. And that led eventually to not only this book, but to me having a lot of skills and strategies that helped me be more of the kind of mother I want to be. And that's not to say I'm perfect, not by a long shot, especially which my daughters would tell you if they were here in the room with us, but I'm a whole lot closer most of the time to being the kind of parent I want to be. Absolutely. And as you said, it helped you to be more mindful and to think some of these things through and not just to react to your triggers and being more present in the moment. So before we get into the book though, real quick, I'm curious to know if you consider yourself a minimalist. I am a minimalist in many areas of my life, but probably not the one that most people think of. So when most people think of minimalism, I think what they think about is stuff and how much stuff you own. And I would say I'm not a maximalist in that regard, but it's an ongoing struggle for us to limit the amount of stuff in our house. So where I've been really focusing on minimalism is around my schedule. And this is going to sound wacky, but let me explain it around my thoughts and my thinking. So in terms of my schedule, I am working really hard to keep our family schedule very minimal because I really see the value for our whole family in having unscheduled downtime where we can play together or my kids can play on their own and my husband and I can go for a walk or I can read a book or do something that's not about rushing from one activity to the next. So 
I've been working really hard at saying no when I can, saying no when I need to, and not overscheduling our family. And I would really say that I'm a minimalist in that regard. The other way that I'm a minimalist is um, in trying to minimize the amount of unnecessary thinking I'm doing. And I feel like I should explain this one. So I don't want your listeners to think that we can control our thoughts because that's really not possible. You know, they're just our neurons firing and thoughts pop in out of nowhere Mm -hmm. and often at very unhelpful times and in unhelpful ways. You know, you're trying to focus on your child and all of a sudden you're remembering some ex-boyfriend from 20 years ago. Why do we need to be thinking about that guy? Or you're worried about the news, which, you know, there's a lot to worry about these days or whatever it may be. And for years, I would sort of indulge that. I would go on this spiral of excessive thinking, and it didn't help me. It triggered me and made me cranky and worried and anxious and more likely to lose it with my kids. So now what I've learned as a result of my mindfulness practice is I can notice when those thoughts show up. And if they're unhelpful thoughts, if they're likely to lead me in a direction that I think is not going to you know, help me be the kind of parent I want to be or the kind of person I want to be, I let go of those thoughts and I'll do pretty much anything instead. I'll count to 10. I have a few little um, prayers I recite sometimes. Sometimes I sing a silly song in my head. Um, Sometimes I pick up a book and read that instead. And sometimes I have to do that 60 times in 60 seconds. But letting go of those unhelpful thoughts really helps me come back to the present moment and not get triggered. So I would say those are the two areas where I really do identify as a minimalist. And I would say I'm a aspiring minimalist in other areas. Yeah, I I think that people discredit how important it is to minimize those areas. And they don't realize that even if they just made a few simple tweaks here and there to their schedule, it would just be beneficial all across the board. But I'm curious to know, I guess, what prompted you to write this book? Because you've written books in the past before, but I guess what made you realize that you didn't want to lose your temper anymore with your children and just tackle the issue of temper in a different, in a deeper way? Since really early on, I found myself yelling at my kids when they were incredibly young, you know, toddlers. And I I have felt guilty about this for years, right? I felt deeply ashamed. And so um, my temper is what led me to the mindfulness classes, to my mindfulness practice of self-compassion. It has been something I've been working on as I write in the book in therapy, because I knew that this was at the core of what was really hard for me in parenting. And I didn't know how to fix or change it. And over time, I realized there was no quick and easy fix, but it was a series of steps I took over years and they were all very doable. Like I I took this very twisty, turny path and road when honestly, if I had known better, there would have been a more straightforward and faster path to making changes, but I didn't know that yet. So I learned it. And then once I learned it, I was like, oh, well, I know other parents are looking for this because in the coaching practice that I was doing with parents, I was talking to them about it all the time. You know, this is a really, really common challenge among parents of our generation for a number of reasons that I outline in the book. And so when I got to a place that I was like, I am doing so much better and I was working with parents and I knew that the strategies and ideas that we had been working on together um, were helping them. And I also knew the research was backing me up. I was reading the research on all of these things I talk about in the book. And I was like, oh, it's time to put this in a book that really focuses on this one issue. Yes. And let's actually, um, let's talk about the book name specifically. So I think it's such a fun and silly title and definitely something that's eye-catching. But what made you choose to title it that name? 
Yeah, so I do use the S word in the title. And I chose this for two different reasons. One, Diane, just being really honest between you and me and everybody who's listening to this, I had noticed that on the New York Times bestseller list, there were a lot of self-help books with profanity in the title. And I was like, well, if that's what's selling, you know, I'd like to write a book that would sell because I want people to read this. And I thought it was funny and different. And so that was one reason. It was really a business decision. Um, But the other reason, and I think the more important reason, is that I know from my own experience and from the experience of many parents that I have worked with, people feel judged by parenting books. People, my friends even told me that they felt judged by my previous parenting books, which I was mortified by. Mm-hmm. Not that I think I was judgmental, but it's hard to read a book where someone is saying, you should do this better, you should do that better, and you should be doing it this way, and not feel bad. And I think there are a lot of parenting books out there that unintentionally leave readers with that feeling. And so I wanted to choose a title that was going to convey hey, this is going to be like you and me sitting down over a cup of coffee talking about this thing we both struggle with. So I wanted parents to know that, look, I'm assuming you're already losing it with your kids. You know why? Because I am too. And I wanted them to know that I wasn't going to be using um, jargon or clinical language, that I was going to talk to them the way I talk to my best friends and the way they talk to me. So I really wanted to convey with this title, like, hey, we're all in this together and we're going to get out of this together. Yeah. And Honestly, I'll just be truthful here. I think that sometimes swear words, <laughs> there's just a time and a place. And I think that it is a descriptive word for me when I do lose it with my children. And sometimes it is rammed up, ramped up and it feels intense and it can really describe how moms feel when they're upset and losing their temper with their children. So I don't think it necessarily makes it right to say that I'm losing my beep, but I think it's a great fit to just encompass what I'm feeling in those moments. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because it's definitely what I feel in those moments too. And I, I do still have those moments. I have them a whole lot less often and they're less intense, but Mm -hmm. I'm a real person. We're all real people and everybody has those moments and that's okay. We just don't want our tempers or our explosions to become the predominant dynamic in our relationship with our kids. We want them to be the exception rather than the rule. And I like that you said it wasn't a change that happened overnight. And I think just so often we want a quick fix because the amount of guilt that you feel when you yell at your child, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, it's just really weighty and heavy and it's not that you want to do that. And yet this little person has just pushed you to that limit to where you have reacted in such a way. So I just think to say that this is going to take some time to change your mindset and just the way that you approach parenting in general Um, I, I just feel like there's a security in that for other women that are experiencing it, but I do have a question for you in regards to what do we do when we start to compare ourselves to those women in our lives? We all have them that just seem to have it all together. They're just never yelling. They just seem so calm and collected with their children. So do you think that there really is such a thing or is that a farce or I don't know. I feel like there are just some women in my life that I look at and I think she cannot possibly yell at her children in the way that I have. So what are your thoughts? So I'm laughing, Diane, because I totally relate to those thoughts. And when I was sort of in the worst of my hardest parenting moments, I truly and fundamentally and deeply believed that I was the only parent yelling at their children. Um, Despite being a social worker who had worked with, you know, I don't know, tons of families over the years who struggled with parenting, I still, my brain was playing these tricks on me. Having said that, look, there are parents for whom parenting is easier. 
And it's easier for a number of reasons. It might be that their temperament is more suited to parenting. Um, it might be that they don't need as much sleep as other people. And we all need a lot of sleep, but some people legitimately need a little less. Mm -hmm. It might be that they have easier kids or more support, or let's be honest, more money. Money can make parenting easier because you can afford to pay for the help you need, right? Or maybe you don't have to work. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, we can all fall into this trap of comparison and it's just not helpful because there are always going to be people who excel at things that we struggle with. And then there are always going to be people who are having a harder time than we are. Mm -hmm. So I would never tell a parent to stop comparing themselves to someone else because I, I don't know how to do that. Like those comparing thoughts pop up for me from time to time. And if I had a way to just stop it, you know, I guess I would, but I think it's part of the human brain. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage parents to do is just notice when there's comparing thoughts come up and do what you can to let them go, distract yourself, try to think of something else, try to just notice the thought and wait for it to pass. Um, and if you find that you are frequently in an experience, either in real life or on social media, that almost always triggers those comparing thoughts, try not to go to that place. So if there is someone that you follow on Instagram and every single image of this person is of him or her smiling and happy and they just practice training for their marathon and their child is playing a perfect piano recital and they've made their homemade cupcakes and they're never showing any of their real life um, or you know whatever they're showing is triggering you in a certain way, don't follow them. You don't need to. You don't need to be triggered in that way. It doesn't mean you're a mean person. It doesn't mean you don't like them. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means you're not a good match on social media. Mm -hmm. And if there's someone like that in your real life, you don't need to spend more time with them than usual. And again, it's not because they're bad or there's something wrong with you. It's just this isn't working for you right now. And that's okay. And like you said, all of our children are so different. So even the way that someone might appear to be on social media are just appear to be on a play date or at the library, they might not behave that way if they had my child or vice versa. So I do think it's encouraging to just take the pressure off of ourselves to compare so much because we're all just trying to obviously do the best that we can. And I always, I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again, especially if you're listening to podcasts like this or just reading books such as yours, if you're just pursuing the knowledge of how to get better with parenting, I, I just, I would say that you're doing a great job and there's just no really reason to compare. Would you say that there's something preventing you from achieving your goals? Mental health has obviously become much more of a topic of conversation and something that we're more aware of and comfortable talking about these days. However, there can be a lot of stress associated with trying to find the right healthcare provider. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes into play. With BetterHelp, they make the process so much easier and streamlined. You can talk to a healthcare professional from the comfort of your own home through your mobile device or your computer. It's so convenient and very personal. BetterHelp will align you with someone based on your needs. So that could be depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, grief, trauma, really anything that you'd like to talk to someone about. But like I said, I personally have been able to check it out for myself and have just seen the ease in which you can receive that care that you're looking for. I just had to go on there, fill out a survey of what I was looking for, and then they set me up with my own personal counselor. Also, if you don't like that person, you can always switch. They make it very painless and easy for you. It's quite fantastic. So if you've really struggled with trying to find the right therapist or someone to talk to in regards to mental health, this is something that I would truly recommend. 
I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash minimalist. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash minimalist. So I once had the opportunity to interview Hunter Clark Fields on the podcast, and her discussion was in regards to reactive parenting, and it just focused a lot on mindfulness in the moments of frustration. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into triggers and I guess just why we've become so triggered and how we can make ourselves less <laughs> triggerable. I don't know if that's a word, but there are always going to be those triggers that we can work through. And then there are going to be those ones that we have the rest of our lives that we're going to have to learn how to manage. So I want to talk a little bit more about triggers and maybe just any advice that you have in navigating those. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I think about triggers, because I think this is a really important topic to explore is when we become triggered. And I, I think of trigger being triggered is we're in a state of sort of high alert and that means our nervous system. So I want listeners to think of this not as a conscious place that we decide to go to, but it's really about our fundamental nervous system that is a very unconscious reaction to the world that evolved over, I don't know, millennia, right? So a long, long time ago when the human brain and human nervous system was developing, we would sort of figure out how to be on high alert so that we could see if there was a tape saber tooth tiger coming at us. And then, you know, our nervous system would kick into this reactive mode where our heart would start um, beating faster, our pupils would dilate, our muscles tense, we're breathing a little more shallowly. And uh, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that can do sort of advanced reasoning, problem solving, planning ahead, managing our emotions, we don't need any of that when we're trying to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. So that part of our brain, that sort of adulting part of our brain, goes offline. And it's our limbic system, which is this very sort of toddler-style fight flight uh, excuse me, fight, flight, freeze, freak out part of our brain kicks into action and is like, run, run away from the tiger. So now, you know, all these years later, we still have that nervous system that's constantly on alert, watching out for any threats. And even though the threats these days tend to be emotional, interpersonal, relational, things like that, you know, you get a credit card bill you can't pay, you have a snipey fight with your best friend, your spouse says something you don't love, whatever it is, our body can still react in this very physical way. And so when our nervous system is all ramped up and ready to fight, flight, flight, (laughs) freeze, or freak out, those are the reactions, that's when we're triggered. And that is when we're most likely to lose it with our children. So the metaphor I use in the book is I talk about our buttons, right? Because everybody says, you know, kids push our buttons and that's when we lose it. And we get really focused on the kid pushing, like make the kids stop doing the thing that pushes the buttons. Well, I don't know about you, but I never figured out how to make a three-year-old stop pushing. That's what three-year-olds do. That's what normal, healthy, developmentally appropriate three-year-olds do. They push buttons. They push them for a million reasons because they don't have a prefrontal cortex that works well because they're anxious and they need our help because they're hungry or tired or just really, really immature because they're only three, Mm -hmm. right, Diane? So they do these button pushing behaviors. Mm -hmm. So rather than focusing on the kids and they're pushing, I got really focused on the buttons. Mm -hmm. What are those buttons about and how is it that we're so easily pushed? And what I think is going on is that when we are triggered because of any number of things that could be happening in our lives, 
um, our buttons get big and bright and super glowy and red and sensitive, and they're so easily pushable, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So some of the things that tend to trigger people um, are pretty universal. Exhaustion, right? You have a four-month-old, Diane. You must be tired, right? Because my guessing is he's not sleeping great. So exhaustion is a trigger for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Anxiety is a huge trigger. And I would argue that we are parenting in an age of deep and intense anxiety, not only around parenting, but also just around sort of life and the state of the world in general. Multitasking is a major trigger. When we try to do too many things at once, our brains and bodies and nervous systems get really stressed out that we're going to mess something up or drop or break or lose or forget something. That's a trigger. So there's some pretty universal triggers. There are also some pretty specific triggers. And a great example in my life is that I'm very triggered by sensory input. If I had been born, you know, 30 years after I was, I probably would have been diagnosed with some sort of sensory processing disorder or something. I don't, I don't know the right words, but loud noises, strong smells, lots of touch, itchy clothes, all of these things are triggering for me. Mm -hmm. So when you're a parent of two children under the age of two, being triggered by loud noises, strong smells, and lots of touch Mm -hmm. is kind of problematic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize it at the time. Whereas my husband doesn't notice any of it. He's not triggered by it at all. Mm -hmm. So I was in this state of sort of having these huge, giant, red, glowy, sensitive buttons all the time. And I didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that even if you have a minimal sensory sensitivity, I think that those can just build throughout the day. So for example, if I'm driving and Benjamin has been crying in the car, I can pretty much tune him out at this point. However, maybe that really does build and build. So by the end of the day, when I've had Benjamin screaming at me and then Charlotte had already woken me up by standing next to my bed and then this and that throughout my day, that's when you just explode because throughout the day, you don't think that you've been bothered, but it's the accumulation of all the things that have triggered you. Does that make sense? That is 100% correct. And I think the important thing to think about is... In the book, I don't tend to think of our kids as the triggers. Mm -hmm. And look, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Children's behavior can absolutely be triggering. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to focus on sort of what we can control. um, And that's us. You know, we can guide our children. We can support them. We can set limits and boundaries, which I really encourage parents to do. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you can't control so well whether or not a four-month-old is going to scream in the car. Mm -hmm. But we do want to start being aware of our triggers. And they absolutely, Diane, can build up over the course of a day. So, you know, let's say you're running late in the morning on the way to preschool. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for many people, that rushing and that running late is a trigger. Mm -hmm. Let's say you forget to have enough coffee or you have too much coffee. So Mm -hmm. being under-caffeinated or over-caffeinated can be a trigger. Mm -hmm. And then somebody, you know, um, pulls over in front of you on the street, on the road, pulls their car, cuts you off in their car, and you almost hit them. And that's a trigger. Mm -hmm. And then a drop off, you know, the daycare provider reminds you that you're, you know, two weeks behind on paying your bill. Mm -hmm. That's a trigger. So by the time you even get to work in the morning, you're triggered. And then for most people, our jobs can be triggering, even when we love them, Mm -hmm. right? Stress, this concept, or the, I I define stress as, the thought, believe, or perception that we can't handle whatever is going on. And many people feel stress at work. They yeah. worry they can't handle it. Or they've got cranky bosses or annoying colleagues or whatever it may be. So then by the time you get back to your kids, you're triggered. Mm-hmm. And let's say you're a parent who doesn't work outside the home, that you are the primary caretaker. Well, a major trigger for most of you, um, for most people, including those working at home um, or staying at home, is social media right? Our phones are huge triggers. We pick them up 
and there's a terrible headline or all of a sudden we realize that somebody we haven't thought in 20 years uh, thought of in 20 years has passed away or we see those moms that we're comparing ourselves to or we're reminded that we've forgotten to do something or we get some snarky email so for most of us our phones are actually major triggers Mm -hmm. so yes diane you're absolutely correct that triggers Sometimes they happen all at once and it's a huge trigger and you know you're triggered and sometimes they build up over the course of a day. Yes. And I'm just thinking specifically with Charlotte waking me up. Maybe I wouldn't be as triggered if I got more sleep that night so I could see how I'm putting all of that on her when it really does start with myself. So maybe if I was a little bit better rested, I could handle that first initial trigger. It's both really, right? Because it's... um, it's you trying to take care of yourself and get rested, which right now you are unlikely to do, Diane, because you have a four-month-old. Mm-hmm. So rather than getting focused on, I'm not getting enough sleep, what I would encourage you to do and anybody else who's dealing with some kind of sleep problem that's not going to be resolved anytime soon, mm-hmm. have a whole lot of compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. It is really hard to parent and adult and be a human well when you're exhausted. And so you know, in those cases, I encourage people, what can you take off your plate? What can you let go of? Mm -hmm. How can you keep reminding yourself that it's okay that you're struggling? I mean, it doesn't feel good and I don't want that for you, but it's okay because that's what humans being, human beings do when they're exhausted. In addition, you also, and I'm sure you're already doing this. I would encourage parents to have conversations with their kids about like, what's an appropriate thing to do when you wake up early and standing over mommy's bed, like a creepy little stalker is not the appropriate thing to do. And I I don't know how old Charlotte is, but I'm guessing she's little. And so you're probably going to have to remind her of that about 27 times before it even starts to sink in. But it's not that we give up completely on giving our children feedback or setting limits or holding to boundaries. It's that we balance that with also what is our role in this too. No, that makes sense. And the okay to wait clock has been very beneficial in my past. So I think that's something I could even use now that would be really helpful. We use those too. And I thought the okay to wait clocks were great. Yeah, I actually, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for an okay to wait clock because those are lifesavers and game changers if you have not yet used one. So As you said, getting back to our conversation, we have these days where we're triggered before we even get to work. So then work is triggering and we can't avoid those things. So how do we work through it? Absolutely. So look, there's two kinds of triggers. There are the kinds we can do something about, and then there are the kinds we can't. And if you have a trigger that you can actually do something about, do it. So if you have a really noisy commute on the train to work, you know, every day and that noise triggers you, get some noise canceling headphones and wear them. If you are in physical pain, because physical pain is a huge trigger and you can go to physical therapy to deal with the problem in your knee or your hip or whatever, do that. But the truth is that for most triggers, you know, there's not a lot we can do. That really painful anniversary is going to roll around every year, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. You know, the people in our family who we love and they also drive us bonkers, that's probably going to keep happening for a while. So we need to learn how to take care of ourselves. And I have a lot of strategies for doing this in the book. And they do fall under what a lot of people call self-care, which is not a phrase I love because I think for many people it feels very self-indulgent. And that's not how I see this. I see this as sort of the basic things you need to do if you want to stay calm with your kids. And so what I call it in the book is um, stuff, I I use the S word because there is profanity (laughs) in the book, but stuff you have to do if you don't want to lose it with your kids. These are requirements. So you need to get sleep right? This is like a basic thing. And if you can't get sleep, you got to have a whole lot of compassion and patience for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to have support in your life. 
parents really cannot parent alone. And I know that for many of us, when things get hard, for whatever reason, the temptation is to sort of like circle the wagons, like buckle down, bring everyone inside, deal with it on your own or in your tight little family until it passes. And I really encourage parents to think about not only on the bad days, but also on the good days, how can we utilize support in our lives and bring more support in our lives. And I talk about that in great detail in the book. Um, Single tasking is a big one I talk about. And that's just about doing one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Because I think for many of us, like, let's talk about Diane, you mentioned this example of when we come home from work, we pick up the kids, we we get home and we're super stressed and triggered. And then what do we do? We jump into like crazy multitasking mode where we're trying to make dinner and deal with the kids and, you know, uh, maybe clean up the kitchen, help with homework. Somebody's on the potty and needs their tushy to be wiped. Like there's a million things going on. And that's actually really stressful. And we come back to this thought, belief or perception that we can't handle what's going on. And our nervous system is on high alert. Our buttons are enormous. The kid does one more thing and we lose it. Mm -hmm. But if we can find a way to slow down and do just one thing at a time, and I know for many parents, um, this feels sort of inconceivable because it's like, oh, if I'm not multitasking, nothing's going to get done. That's actually not true. What happens is things will get done um, in a more efficient and effective way, and you're less likely to lose it. So now, if my kids ask me for help, and I realize my children are older, but if they ask me for help when I'm making dinner, I will say to them, you know what? I'm happy to help you when I'm done making dinner, but you need to be patient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to say that five or six times before they hear it, Mm -hmm. but I stick with it. And what happens is I'm less stressed. About half the time, I would say my kids go off and find the solution to the problem themselves. And when they don't find the solution, they're learning or at least practicing how to be patient, which is an important life skill. So I have a whole lot of strategies um, in the book that really are basic self-care, but I want parents to start thinking about them as strategies they can employ specifically with the goal of not losing their temper with their kids. And... um, One thing I want to say, Diane, is that before we start using these strategies, we have to notice when we're triggered. We have to be aware of it. Do you do do you notice when you're triggered? Is that something you've been aware of? Um, I wouldn't say so. No, but I will say I am pretty much finished with your book. And when I initially began it, I decided to start implementing the idea of noticing. And I will say that it has been so beneficial ever since just reading through those sections of your book. But no, I would say that prior to reading your book, I hadn't really considered to notice. So do you actually, do you want to go ahead and maybe explain a little bit more? Yeah. You know, I, I went for years, literally being like stretched about as tight as a rubber band about to snap and not even noticing it. I had no idea that I was walking around crazy triggered all day. And now I I know what my tells are. I know my red flags. Mm -hmm. That's my, the way that my behavior and my thoughts and my feelings are letting me know that I'm about to lose it. So for example, my shoulders go way up, like almost to my ears. And the idea that I could be walking around with my shoulders so tight and tense and never notice it is kind of crazy, but it was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I also get very snippy with my kids. So I'll start answering them with like one word. Yes. No. Okay, fine like that. Mm -hmm. And when I hear my voice doing that, I know that I'm about 30 seconds away from a meltdown. Mm -hmm. And I will actually say to them, you guys, I'm noticing that I'm feeling very tense and I'm about to yell and I don't want to yell. So I'm going to go take a break and take some deep breaths in the kitchen. And breathing is a really powerful antidote to being triggered. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so what I encourage many parents to do, and I have a whole list of sort of tells or red flags that they can start to notice. Um, and that when you notice these things happening in your body, in your thoughts, in your feelings, it's sort of your way of telling yourself, whoa, hey there, you're about to fall off that cliff and scream at your kids or whatever your version of losing it is. Time to slow down, take some breaths, go outside for a minute, do what you need to do to get calm again. That's great advice. And like I said, it has been beneficial to me just beginning to notice and not to be condemning when I haven't adjusted what I've noticed, but just to be really a scientist and to examine how I'm behaving in the moment so I can address it the next time. Yeah. And I really encourage parents. I love what you said about being a scientist because I really encourage parents you know, I don't want you to turn into the nasty school teacher that's like, why would you do that? Stop doing that. That's mm-hmm. not the goal here. Mm-hmm. Be that scientist and just notice, oh, huh, isn't that interesting? I'm feeling tense right now. What can I do about that? So it's just becoming aware of it. And then you can do exactly, I'm sure, what you talked about with Hunter, who's amazing. Um, you know, then have that sort of mindful reaction, which is compassionate and curious. And huh, what do I need right now mm-hmm. so that I don't explode? Absolutely. Well, do you have any other words of wisdom that you'd like to leave listeners with before we start to wrap things up? Absolutely. If you take one thing away from this, and we've only touched on it, it's that I would really encourage parents to be compassionate with themselves. Remember that you're not alone in this struggle. Many of us have a hard time with this. That parenting is hard. And just because it's hard, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means you're doing a hard thing and that it's really okay to not be perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, None of us are. And our kids don't need perfect. They just need to see us doing the best we can and showing up every day. So um, if you're feeling a lot of shame or guilt, I would encourage you to hang out with people who love you and support you and will speak to you with kindness and compassion and treat you that way and read my book because hopefully you'll feel all the compassion I put into it. Great. Well, where can people find your book? Um, so I always encourage people to go to the local library. My book's there. You can go buy it at independent booksellers. I'm a big fan of those. And if you need to buy it online, check out IndieBound or it's always available at the big online sellers as well. Wonderful. Well, as we're wrapping things up here, I will ask you the two questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is, what is something that you're simplifying right now? AKA, what is your minimalist moment of the week? My minimalist moment of the week is meals. I struggle with dinner time every night. And so I'm trying to really simplify my planning, my scheduling, um, and the food prep around that with my husband's help. Wonderful. And then what is something that you can't stop talking about? Oh, something I can't stop talking about. I am reading the book that I think everybody's read because it was the number one bestseller in the universe last year, um, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And I resisted reading it because usually I don't read the big bestsellers. And in this case, it is such a beautiful, beautiful book that I can't stop talking about it. But what I will say to readers is it does start out with some pretty serious child neglect. Mm -hmm. And if that's going to be triggering for you, then you should not read this book. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really loving it. Yes, I absolutely recommend that one as well. That was a really great read. Well, Carla, I so appreciate your time today. This was such a helpful interview. It was just so full of wisdom. Like I said, I feel like there's a lot that I'll take away here personally. Just I feel like I don't necessarily struggle with my temper as much as I once did, but there are still those 
moments. And I just appreciate some of the wisdom that you have given me in regards to just noticing my triggers. And I'm really thankful for that. So I just appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Diane. And I wish you all the best. And I hope you get some sleep soon. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) What did you think of the interview? I think if I were to walk away from that conversation, one of the first words that would come to mind would just be genuine. And I just appreciate that when authors come from a place of just their real life and their own personal experiences. I think it's easy to preach at someone having not walked through it, but I do appreciate that she has her own wisdom from from having a temper and just understanding what it's like when you do lose it with your children. So I just really appreciate her candidness and honesty, and I hope you were able to take some of these nuggets of wisdom away from this conversation. I invite you to keep the conversation going at minimalismomspodcast.com. There you'll find links to the Facebook page, Instagram account, and where you can find me all around the web. Join me back here next week as I speak with Kate Miley. Kate is a photo organizer and we spent our conversation discussing how we can organize both digital and our tangible photos. So I can't wait for you to hear this one. With summer approaching, you may have a little bit of extra time on your hands to start going through some of those photos and maybe even have your kids help and pitch in. So join me back here next week for that conversation. I thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.